We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Doug shares his message from Broken Heroes, David's Passivity. So if you were here with us last week, you got to hear how David was a great warrior and general. He was a mighty king. Uh, But you might not know that David was a worship leader. In fact, maybe one of the most successful worship leaders of all time, if you think about it. Uh, These days, I feel like worship songs expire after about six months. Uh, You know, people get tired of them, they move on to the next one, right? But David wrote worship songs that we still use the lyrics to this day, 3,000 years later. They've never expired uh, or grown uh, old-fashioned. We still use these words that David wrote. But what you might not know is that the the back half of David's life looked very different from the front half. And so as we we finish out, we're going to talk today about David's passivity uh, and what that looked like uh, for the last few decades uh, of his career. Uh, And uh, just to let you know now, this is the Game of Thrones portion of the Bible. There's going to be stuff in here that you're like, this sounds like they got it from HBO. It's actually probably the other way. HBO got it from the Bible because the Bible has all this stuff in it. Um, So with that warning and heads up, let me now read to you what I consider the worst Bible bedtime story ever. So let's just get into it. All right, so David, he had 20 sons at this point. He's the king of Israel. Got, you know, got a whole family of people jockeying for the throne. Now, David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought that he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shimea. And one day, Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. And when your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. And when Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix the dough. And then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you, you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it, and he'll let you marry me if you want. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then, suddenly, Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. 
So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. And her brother Absalom saw her and he asked, is it true that that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now. Since he's your brother, don't you worry about it. And so Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. Guys, he was furious. He was so angry. You know what David did? Nothing. David did nothing. And this is going to mark the beginning of a pattern that we're going to see for the next several chapters and for the rest of his life. That that in this moment, that this brave warrior, this mighty king, this man who had done so much, will suddenly be struck with paralysis. And in the face of all of these things that he should be dealing with, these things he should be fixing, he's going to do nothing. But as you've probably learned yourself, when, when there are injustices or things going wrong around you, if you don't do something, eventually someone else will, right? So the story continues. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this moment, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. So two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Baal Hazor near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to a feast. And here's how it went down. He went to the king first and he said, my sheep shearers are now at work. Would the king and his servants please come to celebrate the occasion with me? The king replied, well, no, my son. If we all came, we would be too much of a burden on you. Absalom pressed him, but the king would not come, though he gave Absalom his blessing. Well then, Absalom said, if you can't come, How about sending my brother Amnon with us? Why Amnon, the king asked. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until he finally agreed to let all of his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. And Absalom told his men, wait until Amnon gets drunk, and then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid, I'm the one who has given this command. Take courage and do it. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. And they soon arrived in Jerusalem, weeping and sobbing. And the king and all of his servants wept bitterly with them. And David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather, Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Gesher, and he stayed there in Gesher for three years. And King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be reunited with his son, Absalom. So David's firstborn son, Amnon, the heir to the throne, is murdered, and what does David do about it? Nothing. And Absalom, the one that did the deed, now he's fled, he's in exile in Gesher, and what does David do about that? Nothing. And again, the pattern continues. In fact, Absalom, who is now the reigning heir to the throne, you know, the presumed heir, now he's in exile, and people recognize that that's not sustainable. So, in fact, one of David's advisors finally schemes uh, against David uh, and kind of tricks him into bringing Absalom back. And so then when Absalom does finally come back, he spends the next several years 
bashing on David's rule, telling people what an awful king David is and letting every, all the populace know that if Absalom were king, he'd be, a, he'd be a just and a wise king and he would take care of their problems in the way that David isn't because David's just sitting there on the throne doing nothing. So Absalom turns the hearts of the people against his own father and you know what David did? Nothing. In fact, it finally culminated after several years of this when Absalom thought that he had finally earned enough popular support. Uh, Absalom a- actually threw a coup. He rebelled against the king, declared that he was the king now uh, and that he was going to take over and kicked off a civil war in the nation. And I'll give you three guesses as to what David did about it. Technically, he ran away, but then he did nothing. So David runs away, he flees the palace, he just gives, he basically abdicates the throne, he just gives up. Absalom's rebelled, it's a civil war, okay, I'm just gonna run. And, and finally his men, his supporters are like, you can't, you can't do this, and so they, they finally take matters into their own hands. Like, if you're not gonna do anything, we're gonna fight. We're, we're, someone's gotta fight back against this coup. Uh, and so David finally uh, agrees to let other people do whatever they feel like they wanna do about it. And so that's where we're gonna pick up in this moment. And so David divides all of his loyal soldiers into three groups, uh, three groups led each by Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. And, and I've highlighted Joab because if you don't know Joab, you should know Joab. He is maybe one of the greatest characters and villains in all of scripture. His story is intense. If they were gonna do like, uh, not just a Sopranos prequel, but a Sopranos sequel, they could just call it Joab and just take all the stories of his life because he was the original mafia godfather. Joab was the guy, if there was dirty work that needed to be done, that's the guy David asked to do it. David wanted to conquer a city, Joab conquered the city. There was a rival general trying to, trying to jockey for power against David, Joab just assassinated the general for him. Anytime there was dirty work that needed doing, Joab did it up to and including, if you were here last week, remember this awful moment in David's life where where he, he puts a good, faithful man to death to cover up his own adultery. Do you remember who he gave that command to? Joab. Because he knew that Joab was the guy that could get the dirty deeds done. And I, I just want you to know who that is so that you're prepared for some of the terms that this story is about to take. So the king gave this command to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, for my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. And so the battle began in the forest of Ephraim, and the Israelite troops led by Absalom were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day. 20,000 men laid down their lives in this brutal civil war. The battle raged all across the countryside. More men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. And during the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. And he tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree, but his mule kept going and it left Absalom dangling in the air. And so one of David's men saw what had happened and he went and told Joab, I saw Absalom dangling from a great tree. What? Joab demanded. You saw him there and you didn't kill him? I would have rewarded you with 10 pieces of silver and a hero's belt. I would not kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver, the man replied to Joab. We all heard the king say to you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, please spare young Absalom. And if I had betrayed the king by killing his son, and the king would certainly find out who did it, you yourself would be the first one to abandon me. Enough of this nonsense, Joab said. So then he personally took three daggers 
and plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive, in the great tree. And then 10 of Joab's young armor bearers surrounded Absalom and finished the job. Then Joab blew the ram's horn and his men returned from chasing the army of Israel. They threw Absalom's body into a deep pit in the forest. They piled a great heap of stones over it and all of Israel fled to their homes. Joab in cold blood murders the heir to the throne, puts an end to the bloody civil war, violated David's direct instructions, and you know what David did about it. So as, as we look at this story, it's important to, to face this for a few reasons. One is, is we have to stop having this distorted view of these people in the Bible that, that we only talk about in church all of the great things they did because then we think that God used them because they were great people. And we have to look at this honestly so that we can, we can face the truth that they're not. They're just like us. They've got good things about them. They've got bad things about them. And as you look at this story, I want to make one other thing clear, that God was not okay with any of this. This is not the desire that God had for David, for his children. This is not how God wants his plan to be accomplished in the lives of his children. And so what's going on? What are we supposed to learn about this? And, and, and how does it impact how we even understand ourselves even now in this modern age? So I, I want to diagnose this story a little bit. I want to talk about what we can do about it. And, and then I want to end by saying what God himself will do about it. And so the first thing is to diagnose what's going on. If David is this faithful guy, a man after God's own heart, a noble king and leader of God's chosen people, how could his family go so wrong? And it's actually pretty simple and straightforward. There's a concept in the Bible, and it's all throughout Scripture, but we don't necessarily talk about it a ton in modern American Christian circles, but we should. The concept is generational sin which is basically a term that means that when you have a, a sin, a pattern of sin of your life, if you ignore it, if you, if you leave it unchecked, that pattern will repeat itself in your children and your grandchildren's lives. It will. And, and we, we get away from this now because our society is so individualistic and the attitude, even amongst Christians, is very much, hey, what I do affects me and me alone. It's no one else's business what I do. Uh, you don't have to agree with me. Uh, as long as I am fine with what I'm doing, that, that's the end of the story. My sin only affects me. My choices only affect me. And everyone else can just butt out. But the fact is, Scripture teaches that no, your, your choices don't only affect you, your sins have consequences beyond your life. In fact, they have consequences in your children's and grandchildren's life. So we, we have to have this understanding. We, we, we can't keep living in this artificial silo that, that thinks that we're not a part of a system, that we're not a part of a community and a world, and that we don't make an impact on the people around us. Now, this is explicitly taught, this concept of generational sin, is in Exodus 20, which is where God gives us the Ten Commandments. Uh, and after he unpacks the first commandment, uh, he, he explains it. So he says, you must not bow down to idols. That's part of having no other gods. You must not worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. But then he gives this little side note. He says, because here's what you got to understand, folks. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected by sin, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But then God does make a, a holy promise, a salvific promise. He says, but, but for the people that break the pattern, for people that choose me, I will lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me 
and obey my commands. God says, look, if left unchecked, if you just kind of go through inertia and momentum in your life, you will have generational sin. But, but if, you, if you take action, if you turn away from that pattern, if you follow me, then I will break that pattern for you. I, I will show unfailing love, not just for your children and grandchildren, but for a thousand generations. And we see it explicitly in Exodus 20, but you, you, you are gonna see it implicitly all throughout the Bible. A lot of these broken heroes we've been talking about, you see the way that, that generational sin plays out in their family, that, that something one guy does, his son does it too, and his grandson does it as well. And even if you're not a believer, even if the Bible is not your holy book or something that you think is a source and norm for life, here's the crazy thing. Sociology has proven this. It's observed it. That in the human condition, whether you think God has wisdom or not, the human condition is our patterns are replicated on our children and grandchildren. Just one example is divorce. If someone's parents were divorced, they themselves are double the likelihood of getting divorced when they get married. And if they marry someone who their parents were also divorced, their likelihood of having divorce is tripled. That's just something that is observed, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the why of that, but even if you don't understand the why, you see evidence all around that that these patterns in our lives, if left ignored, if left unchecked, if we don't actively try to correct them, they will affect and play out in our children and grandchildren's lives. And this is what we're seeing in the story of David today. You saw last week, David is violent. David gave into his lusts, and look what you see play out in his two oldest sons. Lust and violence trying to accomplish their end by any means. And in the face of it, David was passive. You see, generational sin, it, it, it flourishes under passivity. Because if we don't take action against those patterns of sin ourselves, then they will just wreak havoc in our family due to our inaction. That's what's so painful about it. We don't have to do anything. If we just do nothing, generational sin will have consequences on our children and grandchildren. So, so let's look at why we, we, we give into this, why we let passivity play out, why so many of us, even to this day, uh, let generational sin reign in our lives, or let that pattern be true. And, and so here are maybe some, some reasons, some speculations. As we look at this awful, tragic story of David and his children and why he was so passive, why he didn't take corrective action, maybe he's just too tired. And I get it. If you don't know his story, from the time he was a teenager until now, he's been in nonstop battle. He's been, he's been fighting wars. He's been in exile, out of exile. At one point, he had to conscript himself out to an enemy uh, for the sake of just being protected. I mean, the guy had a hard, rugged life. And now that he's finally the king, he's got the palace and you know, all the things that he should be able to start enjoying life, maybe he's just worn out. He's got nothing left to parent and to invest in his children. Or maybe it's that his own past guilt and shame disqualifies him from, from, after all, like what can he say to Amnon in that moment where Amnon uh, has let lust drive him to this, this violent action when David himself let his lust lead him to, to coerce another woman into sex? Like what does he have to say to Amnon in that moment that wouldn't ultimately condemn him for his own past life and past sins? Or I think this is a particularly brutal part of this story is, is even in this moment where Amnon and Absalom are, are doing these awful things, that David is complicit. He was the one that sent Tamar to Amnon's room. She wouldn't have done it if David hadn't told her to. And so, so how can he engage with this without having to face that he made it happen? Absalom spent all those years building up power for the rebellion and David knew about it and he didn't do anything. And so now in this moment where Absalom rebels, all he knows is that if he has to, to try to face Absalom or call it out, he also has to admit his own enabling of that behavior. 
I think at the end of the day for David, Amnon was his oldest son, the heir to the throne. And once Amnon died, Absalom was the oldest and the presumed heir to the throne. And for a man who is a, a new king trying to start a new dynasty, the, the consequences of having to punish these sons were, were, were horrific. How's he going to establish his lineage and, and his kingdom if he has to, to face the consequences for his sons? And just so you know, the consequences for both of those actions was execution. That's what should have happened to them by law. And David knew that, and he was so terrified of that that he was paralyzed and couldn't do anything at all. And I tell you, as I speculate and and look at these motives for David and why, why he let his children just run amok like this, I see every one of these in my life. I don't know about you, but I see them. I know how tired I am at the end of the day. I'll tell you, you know, we, we drive back to Colorado a lot. It's a 12-hour road trip, and we have little kids, and, uh, and we are so strict about screen time with, with our kids. And so we kind of say to them, you know, it's a 12-hour drive, but you know what? You get to watch one movie in the whole 12 hours. And we made them wait for it, too. We're like, you got to make it to the middle of Kansas, six hours in, and if you've been good, then we'll watch a movie, right? That's how strict we were. And then COVID hit, and I got to tell you guys, all screen limits are gone in my house right now. I, we just, we don't, ha- we, don't have the, we don't have the tolerance for the bickering and the fighting and the pestering and, the, and we're like, oh yeah, just, just watch a screen, please. Just watch any screen you want if it'll leave us alone, right? I get to the end of my work day, the end of a week, and I'm just so tired. All of those active, engaging ways I want to I wanna interact with my kids, they're just gone because I'm just, I'm just wiped. I get it. Or, or, or this past guilt and shame, I don't know how many conversations I've had with parents of teenagers and these parents, they're, they're, they feel so disqualified from having talks about biblical morality and, and, and good sexual practice with their kids because they're like, well, you know, I got pregnant as a teenager myself, so who am I to tell my kids how they should live their lives now? And, and, it, and it's heartbreaking. I feel such sympathy and mercy for these people that feel like because they messed up, they now can't even speak into their kids' lives today. Or how often our, our implication in our kids' behavior becomes so um, overwhelming to us that we have to just keep it at bay, right? I don't know about you, but, but when you've had that moment where a teacher or a principal has had to call you about something that your kid has done, and, and in that moment, it, it's not just about that, you know, what, what your child has done, it's also the implications for you. Like, okay, like what kind of a parent does this make me look like? I, I look like I must be the worst dad in the world to this, to this teacher, this principal. It, it's so hard to just engage with what's going on with your kid because you have a, a investment in that. Your identity is wrapped up in that. And so it's easier to just not, not deal with it or, or blame other people or say, it's not his fault, it's someone else's fault because if it's his fault, then that means it's ultimately my fault too. Or this last one, this last one is, is pretty interesting to me. I, I had opportunity to listen to an expert speaker just this week. Uh, she's an expert on, on education, parenting, ADHD, a lot of these things that are going on today. She's been in the, in the business for over 20 years. And she says, you know what? She actually knows why our kids today, the youth, are struggling so hard. And, and it's not technology, and it's not a lot of these things we, we like um, to, to blame it on. She says it's really one thing, that, that this generation of parents works so hard to spare their children from any consequences. And that as a result, our kids, they're they're not learning grit and and the ability to to conquer and and overcome things. When when they don't have to see consequences, then then they just end up kind of skating through life being like, oh, everything's just just served me. And and then the kids themselves become anxious. The kids themselves don't try to do hard things because they've learned from their own parents protecting them from consequences that they must not be able to do it. 
And she talks about this kind of epidemic of parents arguing over test scores on their kid's behalf, or if a kid does something wrong at work, the parents are the ones calling the boss and trying to kind of you know, protect everything and carve it out. And she's saying, this is the thing, that parents are so terrified of consequences for their children that they've let their children to flounder in anxiety and inadequacy, and they're not developing the grit that they need. And again, I tell you guys, these all resonate for me. This one, I rode my bike everywhere as a kid. My parents didn't know where I was. We don't let my own daughter ride her bike until this year we got her an Apple Watch. And now she can ride her bike because we have GPS location. Because we're so fear, what could the consequences be if she was just in our neighborhood and we didn't know where she was? See, I I think this is driving all of us. I I think all of us have passivity in our lives, and I think these are some of the fears that are what are are shaping that in us. And that's going to play out everywhere. It's so obvious in children and grandchildren, and the story today is about children and and, and our family legacies, but but this is for everything. There's so much anxiety, so much fear of making the wrong choice, not doing the right thing at work or in a relationship, and it all just leaves us to to anxiety, indecision, paralysis, and we don't make the active choice or do the right thing that we should be doing because we're all, in a lot of ways, stuck with passivity. So what can we do about it? What is the antidote to passivity? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that it's not is just to do something. I think so often people think, oh man, I, I don't want to let the stuff that my parents did you know, pass on. I, I don't want this pattern to be good, so I'm just going to do something, do anything, do everything for the sake of trying to change this pattern in my life. I see it play out for me. When I was growing up, my parents didn't go to any of my soccer games. Like, I went to like two in my entire high school career. We won the state championship. My parents didn't go. It was too far to drive. They didn't, they didn't want to watch that, right? And so what did I do now that I'm growing up and I remember how bad that felt and I remember that my parents didn't care enough to go to my games. So what do I do now as a parent? I don't just go to all my kids' soccer games. I coach all my kids' soccer games, right? Because I, I got to do something. I got to do everything. I'm not going to be passive. I'm not going to sit back and let my kids get screwed up. I'm not, not going to let the world you know, do all this harm to me and my family. I'm going to do all the things. And it's exhausting. It's so hard. Everywhere you turn, there's another thing someone's going to judge you by, another decision that someone else has, has, has a thing, an opinion about. And, and we're trying to do all of the things. And as a result, we end up wiping ourselves out and we do none of the things. So I want to release this burden from you today. First and foremost, don't just try to do something, do anything, do everything. That's not the solution. The answer is, it's a little more simple, it's just to do one thing, but make sure that it's the next right thing. Just do one thing, but just make sure it's the right thing that you should be doing. Uh, In fact, there's a great book by a Christian um, uh, leader, speaker, writer, uh, Emily P. P. Freeman is her name, and uh, and her book is literally called The Next Right Thing, and it is powerful and it's beautiful, and if you're looking for for some help and some thoughts on this, check that out, The Next Right Thing by Emily P. Freeman. She's going to have great tips for you. But here's what I've observed. Believe it or not, I think that we often know even without reading the book, what the next right thing to do is. I think we actually know that. I think our God-given wisdom and discernment helps us most of the time. We know what the one next right thing to do is, but there are two things that keep us from doing it. And so the first one is if we want to actually be able to do the next right thing, we have to take this step. We have to relinquish the personal. You see, too often we are so invested 
in what's going on. We're so invested in the lives of our kids. We care so deeply that they grow up to be, to be noble people, you know, men and women of integrity. We care so much that that's part of what paralyzes us from doing the next right thing or it makes us not even recognize uh, the, the true thing that we would because we're so invested in them personally. I've, I've put so many years of my life into these kids and, and if they screw up or if I screw up, that, that it matters so much to me that it's paralyzing. But if I can instead take a step back, if I go, all right, this doesn't have to be personal. This doesn't have to be, be, be so immediately affecting of my life. Believe it or not, I'm often going to already know what the next right thing to do with my kid is if I can make it a little less personal. And what's crazy is there's actually a moment in this Bible story, I skipped over it, but now we're going to go back, where this is the exact thing that happened to David. All right, so we're going to go back to the story. Absalom has been in exile for three years. And you remember, David longed for him, but was paralyzed and couldn't do anything about it. Didn't feel like he could do anything about it, right? And in that moment, Joab comes up with a plan. Joab realized how much the king longed to see Absalom. And he also recognized that he was never going to do anything about it. So he sent for a woman from Tekoa who had a reputation for great wisdom. And he said to her, pretend you are in mourning. I want you to wear mourning clothes, don't put on any lotions, act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. And then go to the king and tell him the story that I am about to tell you. And and then Joab told her what to say. And when the woman from Tekoa approached the king, she bowed with her face to the ground in deep respect and she cried out, oh king, help me. What's the trouble, David asked. Alas, I am a widow, she replied. My husband is dead, and my two sons had a fight out in the field. And since no one was there to stop it, one of them was killed. And now the rest of my family is demanding, let us have your son. We will execute him for murdering his brother. He doesn't deserve to inherit his family's property, but they want to extinguish the only coal I have left, and my husband's name and family will disappear from the face of the earth. Leave it to me. David told her, go home and I'll see to it that no one touches your son. She was grateful, but then she said, okay, but but please allow me to ask one more thing of my lord the king, she said. Go ahead and speak, David responded. She replied, then why don't you do as much for the people of God as you have promised to do for me? You have convicted yourself in making this decision because you have refused to bring home your own banished son. He admitted that she was right, and then he said, I must know one thing, the king replied, and tell me the truth. Yes, my lord, the king, she responded. Did Joab put you up to this? And the woman replied, my lord, the king, how can I deny it? Nobody can hide anything from you. Yes, Joab sent me, and he told me what to say. But he did it to place the matter before you in a different, in a less personal light. But you are as wise as an angel of God and you understand everything that happens among us. And so the king sent for Joab and he told him, all right, go and bring back the young man, Absalom. What's so fascinating about this moment to me is this, David already knew the next right thing to do. The moment it was someone else's family, the moment it was, it was not so personal to him, he knew you don't, you don't you know, let a woman be left behind, you, you don't let a, a one remaining son be, be punished and, and the family wiped out. He knew the right thing to do, but he couldn't recognize it as long as it was personal. And that's what is true for us too. And I know that's right for me, right? I, I struggle with what to do with my own kids, but you know what I never struggle with? What that parent over there should do about their kids. 
I always know. I'm like, oh, it's clear as day. You need to do this. this. I know all the things, right? Because when it's not me, when it's not my life, when, when I don't have that personal emotional investment, it's clear we know the next right thing to do. It's, our, it's, our, it's when it's so personal, it's so important to us that we're unable to do it. We actually blind ourselves to a truth that we would know if we were able to, to divorce ourselves from the personal so much. But here's the thing, that's also incredibly difficult to do. This is the last thing we have to be able to do in order to relinquish the personal. We have to find a way to surrender to God's outcome for our life for the life of our children. We have to figure out how to trust God's intentions for us enough that he will bring an outcome in our life that that is better than what we could plan, that it will be good for us. And this is what we see so clearly in David's life that he he could not fathom how to come out of this with any sort of good outcome, right? The moment his son has done a capital crime and these are the heirs to the throne, he, he doesn't know how to make a good outcome for himself. And if you were here last week, you heard that one of the promises God made to David was he said, David, you can't build me a temple. You're a man of violence. I I need a man of peace to build my temple. And then God said to David, he said, David, you're going to have a son of peace who takes over the throne after you. And then he's going to establish your legacy, your lineage forever. I haven't told you this yet, but do you know what the name Absalom means? It means father of peace. And it is so obvious to me that David, in his, in his attempt to interpret and understand God's promise for him, God says, I'm going to have a son of peace. Look, look at this guy, Absalom. That's my son of peace. I'm the father of peace to him. Like, like this is the guy. And so then when Absalom you know, murders Amnon, when he goes in exile, David is, is just completely floored because now what? What's going to happen? All of the outcomes, all of the promises God had said to him, they're, they're trash. And, and so David, because nothing he could think to do that, that wouldn't end in Absalom's execution meant that if he has to execute Absalom, then God's outcomes for his life are done. But here's the thing. It's the thing that we know with the power of thousands of years of hindsight. David actually had two sons named peace. Absalom, father of peace. Solomon, peaceful one. And Solomon, even though he was about 19th down on the son order of inheritance, Solomon was the one that God intended to bring to the throne, that God was going to use as an ancestor of Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate son of peace, not just for David's line, but for the whole world, a world marred by hostility and anger and passivity, that Jesus would be the son of peace to fix all of it, to smooth it all over, to bring shalom to the world. But David was so tied up on his own version of how the outcome should go that he missed it, that he fought against it, that he wouldn't do the next right thing because he was so terrified of the consequences of the next right thing. And as a result, David himself was at odds with God's intention for his life. But here's the dirty secret. God's will will always be done. We have this prayer that Jesus gave us, the Lord's Prayer, and there's that line in it where we pray, thy will be done. And and I think too often, we we think what we're saying there is that, hey God, we want your will to happen, and so we're gonna pray your will into existence. That's how powerful I am, that I'm gonna pray this thing, and God, your will is gonna happen because I said it in this prayer. And that's a misunderstanding of what we're saying in that moment in the Lord's Prayer. So here's what we're really saying. God's will is going to be done whether I contribute or not. 
God's will is going to be done whether I'm an ally and a collaborator or whether I am resistant and fighting against it. And when we pray that line in the Lord's Prayer, what we're saying is, Lord, help me submit to your will in my life. Let your will be done through me. Let me be an active collaborator in your will that is going to get done no matter what I do. That's what we're saying in that moment, and that's why it's so important. Because by praying that prayer, we align ourselves with God's outcome. We're surrendering ourselves to his will. And when we don't do that, you get what you see in the lives of David's family. See, here's the tragic thing about this, is God's will is gonna be done, but, but you can see when we fight against it, when we try to cling to a lesser version of it, when we try to understand and control outcomes, it inevitably leaves bodies in its wake. This is not the way God wanted Solomon to ascend the throne. This is not the vision that God had for David's family. So the question is, why? Why would God use this messy, broken family? Why would God let David be a worship leader when David's life is so messed up? And the answer is, because what else is God going to do? We're all messed up. He could have picked a different family. They'd have been messed up too. They would have been broken. When we, when we struggle to grapple with how someone like David could be God's chosen leader and yet be so messed up, what we're actually struggling with is the human condition because if God waited for non-messy, non-broken humans to advance his kingdom, God would just do it all himself. He would never use a one of us because we're all broken. We're all messy. The, the real amazing, powerful thing in this is not that God's will is going to be done with or without our, our collaboration. It's that in spite of all of the junk in David's family, God sees something different in David than what we would see when we look at this mess. Scripture even says, God spoke to the prophet Samuel. He says, the Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. See, people in the world, they judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, we read the David story and we see tragedy and we see dysfunction and we, we see all of these awful, toxic consequences of sin, and that's true. But God actually sees something deeper than those. See, God sees the heart. And, and I used to think that what that meant was that God was like a spiritual x-ray and he could be like, oh yeah, that's a diseased heart, that's a gross heart, that's yucky. And then, oh, here's a good heart, I can see that, and that's a good heart. But here's what I actually think it means now. I, I think that when God looks at every one of us, and he looks at all of our brokenness, all of our bad behaviors, and he, unlike anyone else, is able to see that deep down, there's still that original child that he created. There's still that pure heart that he put in us. And at the end of the day, all of our bad behaviors are just our attempts to try to, to meet an unmet need or, or try to protect ourselves from a wound, something that is so powerful and painful in our lives. And so we, we put on these coping mechanisms, we put on these sinful patterns, and the rest of the world has no choice but to kind of judge us by those patterns. They judge us by our children. They judge us by the sin that they can see. And yet God alone sees past all that. He recognizes it for what it is, that, that our actions are not the things that define us. Our heart is what defines us, and God knows our heart. See, for all of David's bad behavior, his passivity with his family, we actually have more of a glimpse into his heart than we do of just about anyone else because of all those worship songs he wrote. And that David, in the midst of the dysfunction, in the midst of his pain and his sin, he wrote these words. He wrote, create in me a clean heart, O God. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
but restore to me the light of your salvation and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That underneath all the coping mechanisms, underneath all the bad behavior, David himself had a heart that longed after God, a contrite, confessional heart, a heart that wanted the things God wanted for him. And it's tragic that his actions and his behaviors and the way he tried to get those good things went so awry, but it doesn't change the heart underneath. I heard this amazing quote a few months ago from a man named Shola Richards. I think this is the purest expression of God's grace that I've ever heard a human being say. Shola says that all bad behavior is simply an unskilled expression of an unmet need. Think about it, all all the worst behaviors of people around you, that, that it's just someone who doesn't know a better way to meet, to protect an unmet need. And here's the thing, I think all of our needs are ultimately good. I think God is the one who built our hearts. God is the one who knows what drives us. God is the one that knows that we are desiring creatures. Our needs are pure. It's the behaviors that go wrong because when a need gets unmet, we will resort to all sorts of things. We will try to control the outcomes. We will try to make things work in our own power and strength and that will inevitably end badly for us. But if we can learn how to see past that facade, past the broken behaviors, past the unmet, uh, the unskilled expressions, we get a glimpse of the heart that God sees as well. The heart that he saw in David and the heart that I know God sees in you and me. I had this moment this week as I was wrestling with all this and, and prepping for it where one of my kids uh, you know, lashed out at me and was like, you're the worst dad in the world, I hate you. And in that moment, I know how my dad would have handled that. I mean, that's instant grounding, go to your room, all screens are gone. You know, if I had the energy to enforce that, which I don't. But in that moment, I, I followed the steps as I, as I was trying to, to write them out for you today. I, I took a step back and I was like, okay, what's, what's actually the next right thing to do in my child's life right now? And, and how can I relinquish the personal? It, it, it's, it's shaming, it, it hurts my pride, it makes me feel like a bad dad that, that my kid felt the need to say this to me, but, but can I make it not personal? Can I be like, okay, this doesn't have to be about me and my feelings in this moment. And then can I surrender the outcome of this child, my beloved child to God? Because guys, as you know, I'm sure you're just like this. I lose sleep over it. I want my kids to grow up healthy and fulfilled. I don't want them to be jerks. But can I in this moment, just like some of the great fathers of old in the Bible, where you see parents, I think of Hannah, was this wonderful mom who took her beloved child and she literally submitted him to the Lord. And she said, you know what, as his mom, I want the best for him, but, but even more important that I'm his mom, I say, God, you are his heavenly father and you want better for my son than I could ever have for him myself, that I could ever make work. And when I do that, when, when I relinquish the personal, when I submit and surrender the outcome to God, then that puts me in this spot where just like Shola, I can look at my child and go, even though they're lashing out, even though they're angry, even though they said something mean, this is just an unskilled expression of an unmet need. And then I can make the choice, instead of reacting to the behavior, I can instead react with a posture that bends towards my child that says, I love you, I like you, I delight in you, even when you're yelling and doing mean things, I still like you, let me show you. 
And we were able to foster connection and we were able to, to patch up and, and we were able to ultimately correct the behavior, but we did it because I was able to follow those steps and to see the heart in my child underneath the bad behavior. And here's what I can tell you, is that the same God who can look at all of the dysfunction and the fratricide and the rape of David's family and can still see his heart underneath it, he can look at your life. Whatever messiness there is, whatever brokenness, whatever things you've messed up, whatever things have gone wrong, I'm promising you, God does not look at you by those things. He sees your heart. He sees those unmet needs, those core wounds, those things that have been driving you to build these coping mechanisms and these ways to try to control your outcomes. And God feels nothing but compassion for you. And just like I was able to die to myself a little so that I could, I could restore connection with my child, God dies to himself in the form of Jesus Christ so that he could connect with you heart to heart, not judging your behaviors, not, not, not giving you consequences for them, but just his heart to yours. That God delights in you. And God will affect his will in your life, his good, his loving, his kind will, the outcomes that he wants for you because God has never and he will never lose sight of your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these hard stories in scripture. Thank you for making it so clear to us that, that we don't have to have a, a caricature of these people, that we don't have to assume that they were all perfect and, and these godly saints in every aspect of their life, but that they were broken, flawed human beings just like us today. And so Lord, let us learn your truth from the story. Let us, let us see how you see to the heart, not just of David, but of all of us. And that you would not let your will be thwarted, but that you made sure that David's line was secured. You brought a son of peace to his throne in spite of his passivity, in spite of his family. You worked your good in his life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do the same for us now. That if you who look at our hearts do not condemn us, then help us not to condemn ourselves. Help us to submit and surrender to your love and delight for us and help us submit to your outcome for us because your will for our lives is better than anything we would create for ourselves. And Lord, lift us up through the power and the blood of your son, Jesus. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us. And help us then to make a change in response and gratitude to the love that you feel for each and every person here today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.